Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is the award-winning journalist, author and podcaster, Rennie Edo-Lodge. In 2014, Rennie, then 24 years old, published a blog entitled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. This was an online sensation and Rennie followed it up with her Tour de Force book of the same name. Rennie, thank you for being with me and I definitely want to discuss your book. But before we do, I would like to take you back to your childhood. You grew up in North London in a single parent household with your mother who migrated from Nigeria. Can I ask you, when was the first time you ever thought to yourself, girls get treated differently from boys? Well, first, I guess I have to contest your introduction a bit. I was in a single parent household with my mum until I was about seven. And then we moved in with my stepdad in North London. For the first seven years of my life, it was just me and her. So, you know, obviously I didn't have too much to compare against in terms of gender. I think for me, what was incredibly apparent in my teenage years and when I hit puberty was um, street harassment, you know. So I didn't really feel like, you know, growing up as a girl that things were particularly different to me in school, in school or anything like that. But when I hit puberty, when I was in secondary school, I just started to receive street harassment, probably from the age of about 11 onwards, being followed by men in the street on my walk to and from school, to and from the bus stop. I remember there was one time at the bus stop, and obviously you go to school every day, so you're frequenting the same areas, where a strange man asked for my number. And when I, you know, sort of ignored him and carried on walking, he grabbed my arm and yanked me. There were times when I was walking the route home from the bus stop and a man, you know, emerged from his house and claimed that he saw me every day at the same time and decided that we were destined to be together. And I guess I just got tired real quick of being treated like a piece of meat on the street. You know, that's what radicalized me. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't have the vocabulary to understand what feminism was at the time. You know, I was probably between the ages of 11 and 14, but I felt quite indignant that there was this atmosphere on the streets that I'd grown up on. I was, you know, a regular in the area going about my way to and from school and to meet friends and stuff. And there was this feeling that men owned those streets and I was an accessory. That's when it became really clear to me that something was up, something was wrong. I never acclimatised to it. I never believed that it was normal. I always felt indignant about it. 
And race, when did you first start thinking about race? You've said that you did ask your mother at one point, when am I going to turn white? How did you think about race as a child? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a lot earlier. You know, I asked her that question probably before the age of five. And I also went to a primary school in South London for the first few years of my life that was, I was probably like one of the only black kids in my class. There was me and an Asian boy. So that was a little bit more sharp. I do remember situations, incidents, and obviously I didn't write about these in the book because, you know, it's not really a memoir, but there was this teacher in primary school. So maybe I was five or six years old. And whenever we were drawing portraits, she'd always encourage us to draw beautiful blue eyes, which is just something that only white people have blue eyes. So I remember querying that. I remember having some kind of argument or debate in the playground with a girl who insisted, again, this is a a young girl below the age of 10, that white people's tongues were pink and black people's tongues were black and just weird othering like that. So I was encouraged, I think, socially to believe that I was different from the norm from a very young age. And what about questions of of class, of economic resources? You have talked in the past about how your mother made many sacrifices, including risking the rent to buy you a birthday present. Did that make an impression on you as a child? Um, Not so much, because uh, for the first few years of my life, until we moved in with my stepdad, we were in council housing, so everyone was pretty much in the same boat, you know. There was nothing hard to compare it to, really, When I was in secondary school, again, I would say most of us were in the same boat. Like it was a very mixed school, probably like by ethnicity and to some extent class, you know, the school I went to in North London. But I think London's one of those strange places. Having travelled the world with my book, I now understand London to be almost an anomaly in that there are areas of this city where there are people from many different class backgrounds and, you know, ethnic backgrounds and, and whatnot who send their kids all to the same school. You know, if it's considered a good school, everyone will go there. And difference isn't particularly highlighted unless you go and visit someone's house, you know. And then you realise, oh, so-and-so's actually got a nanny. You know, I went to a state school, so it wasn't that sharp. I think it was by the time I went to university, I went to the university in the north of England. That's when it became a little bit more clear. It felt less that we were all in the same boat. You know, I remember dating somebody whose family lived in a big house and they had heated underfloors so your feet would never be cold. You know, and I was like, oh, this is this is different. This is fancy. So, yeah, I do feel very lucky and privileged that my upbringing in London, I now understand as an adult looking back that I went to school with people who were living in real hardship, people whose whole families were living in one room. But when we were all, all in the classroom, those differences they melted away. They weren't, they weren't significant. You talk in your book about studying English literature at university and you talk very powerfully about the impact of studying black British history when you got to university. Now, we obviously can't summarise all that history in one podcast, but can you tell us what it meant to you to study black British history? Well, sadly, at university, I didn't study black British history. Most of that was off off my own back. I know a lot of the stuff that I write about in the book. But what I did learn about, I guess you could call it black British history, but I would say it's more British history. I learned about the British involvement in the slave trade, in the international slave trade at university. We did this one module. I had not really been aware, and at this point I was like 18 or 19, that there was a significant British participation in the slave trade. I mean, we knew it was transatlantic, but 
up until that point, everything that I'd learned through school curricula really focused on the States, right? So that was kind of mind-blowing to me. And again, being in the northwest of England, being so close to Liverpool, it suddenly brought it home to me about how how prescient I think that that, that involvement really was, you know, that it had actually had a serious financial impact on that particular area of, of England. I wouldn't call it Black British history. I'd call that British history that Britain is not so great at claiming. We in Australia have our own version in some way of how we teach history. So a person of my age, when I went to primary school, we were basically taught Australian history started when Captain Cook got here and there was no history to be studied before that, whereas thankfully now children are taught about the history of Indigenous Australia before white arrival, but it's taken many years for us to get to that point and it is I think, interesting to look back as an adult on what version of the truth, inverted commas, was presented to you. Yeah, definitely. And it reproduces ignorance, essentially, if we're not careful, like generations after generations after generations who aren't aware of that, then don't even have a basis to understand what racial inequality looks like, right? So then we have adults who, if you have a generation of adults in in Britain who never really considered that the international like the transatlantic slave trade had anything to do with Britain then if then someone like me 30 years down the line is trying to point out that there's a legacy in Britain then you can understand where the denial and the pushback comes from and that's not to uh patronize because I do think that just because we may not have learned about it in school I think it's possible to learn about these things later in life you know, I certainly did. My only concern is that a lot of us are lacking the basis of understanding. I mean, the book for me, it was published when I was 27 years old. I was still fairly young. I ended up getting this opportunity to travel the world in order to talk about the work. And I came back to Britain realising how little I really knew still about British impact around the rest of the world. You know, it's remarkable when you hear it from other people's, from other countries' perspectives. You also found feminism. You talk in your book about being at university and starting to read feminist literature, and I think that was not necessarily because it was on the curriculum but because you became interested in it. And then you talk about how you went to women's meetings and feminist events and how you felt compelled to go, often travelling long distances to partake in these activities. And you talk about how all of that exposure to feminism made you a more critical and confident woman, but you talk about how you ended up feeling that you had to tiptoe around race discussions in these feminist meetings, and it wasn't until you were involved with a group of black feminists that you were able to bring your whole self to the discussion. Can you describe that to us, what that felt like, how you lived through that experience? Actually, this is a situation that is the complete opposite of my understanding of Black British history. So feminism was on my curriculum. It was part of critical theory module of my English literature degree. So I read Simone de Beauvoir's A Second Sex, and I strongly identified with what she said. And I think that that came from my history of street harassment, basically, up until that point, you know, of being made to feel like an object in public space. I really strongly resonated with that. And, you know, I remember as soon as I got home, Googling UK feminism, seeing what came up and deciding, okay, this is something I've got to be involved in because clearly I'm not the only person who who thinks this, right? 
I just made it my business, you know, used up my student loan, made it my business to go to things and see things. And you're right, I did go to some conferences. And um, I think like, if you've ever been in a relationship with a, with a person, not necessarily romantically, even friendship wise, who's they're very a domineering personality, and you just know that there are some unspoken rules about about what you can and can't say around them, right? Like, so I, I got involved in this like vibrant, like strident feminist movement, and that was the domineering personality. But you know, it was a group of people rather than one person. It was just unspoken that gender was the number one thing that that we were supposed to be concerned about, and to raise something that may be perceived in opposition to gender discrimination, even if you were being directly affected by it as a woman, it was going to be looked down on. So I do remember, you know, going to one of these conferences years ago, it was a a university campus, but it wasn't just students there, it was all sorts of different people, and finding myself on on the green outside with uh, some young Muslim feminists. And one of them said to me that she'd been told by an older white woman in the space that, you know, why is she wearing her hijab? Like, can't you see it's a symbol of oppression, you know? And that appeared to be the the overriding, like, sense of consensus there. And she was she was afraid to dispute it. And I remember coming away from some of those meetings, and it, sometimes it wasn't ex- explicitly said, but I remember coming away from some of those meetings thinking, yeah, it's definitely not the dumb thing to even discuss racism here. Not necessarily racism in the space, but just even racism in current affairs. I, I had a feeling that you're going to be told that this isn't relevant to the space, right? So yeah, I would say it was it was unspoken. I mean, in the book, I do try to give some concrete examples of how that went down. So, you know, by the time I'd met Black feminists, they were organising to intervene in these kind of gatherings and have a little, you know, speak to the organisers and have their own space. And they successfully did that at one big conference and there was a sign-up sheet, you know, for black feminists to get together and somebody, I guess, had defaced the sign-up sheet by the end of the day and written why, you know, what's the point of this of this gathering? What's the point of black women in particular to get together to talk about not just feminism but racism, you know? So to, that was a concrete example. Another clear one that sticks in my mind was a feminist organiser, a friend of mine who was an Asian woman. She had organised a... Uh, I guess a round table or something like that to discuss uh, beauty standards, you know, something that is very much like pedestrian to discuss a feminism now. But back then it felt like we were, I'm not going to be arrogant and say it was the beginning of the conversation. Not at all. I mean, people have been talking about this for longer than I've been alive, but it felt quite nascent in the recent feminist movement at that point. And so she'd got out all of these magazines, you know, when people used to read magazines, she got them all out. She was like asking the group, okay, well, what are the similarities in all of these women, right? And basically it was glossy magazines, white women, models and whatnot. All of us were talking about the similarities between these women. and But nobody, I mean, I I kept stum because, you know, I, I was just there to observe, I suppose. Nobody in the group, and it was overwhelmingly white women, said, yeah, they're all white, you know. People talk, spoke about how they were slim and they were this and they were that. So in the end, my feminist organiser friend pointed out, yes, and all of these women who we're supposed to see as glamorous and beautiful are also white, right? And then another woman in the group was like, yeah, and none of them have got short hair like me either, you know? And I, to me, again, that just just like another clear example of like, you don't really get it, do you? I mean, you can grow your hair out, but 
The rest <laughs> of us can't change the colour of our skin, you know. So they, those might seem like quite flippant examples, I suppose. But to me, those are like more subtle signs of like a pervasive consensus that there is a an agenda here and and it's a white one, essentially, you know. We're going to be talking about gender discrimination here, but if you try and discuss how that affects people who aren't white, you'll be in trouble, essentially. And after you came through these experiences, you graduated, you made attempts to get into journalism and third sector work, and then you decided to try and make it on your own as a freelance writer, living literally on the poverty line to try and make it into the industry. Where did the passion for that come from? I mean, that's a hard road to hoe. It has obviously worked for you, but there must have been moments when you thought to yourself, more traditional career path, being an employee somewhere would have to be easier than this. Well, I think my time in feminist organising sort of convinced me that my country desperately needed a, a public conversation about what racism meant because I was surrounded by people who considered themselves to be progressive and wanted the world to change. And even they had a serious blind spot on it, right? So that was like my conviction. But we also have to remember that I graduated like four years after the financial crisis or three years. I graduated in 2011 and then I was a, I was elected president of my student union. So I stuck around for a year. But to be honest, where I went to university, there wasn't really much going on. So I decided to move back to London. <laughs> I didn't want, to, didn't want to get a job with the university. So I graduated a few years after the financial crisis. And honestly, I'm going to say recruitment was largely decimated in every area that I wanted to join, right? It felt like you had to network or benefit from nepotism. I didn't really have any of those things. So the traditional employee route, there was less of it around, right? So I did manage to get jobs here and there, and it'd be for like a six-month contract, a three-month contract, and then you'd be looking for a job again. And after a few bits and pieces of that, and sometimes being told, well, there's, there'd be a job lined up for me, and then being told, oh, actually, the funding's gone and stuff, I just thought, well, I've really got nothing to lose here. You know, I've really got nothing to lose. It was a very difficult time to try and fight to work your way up a sector with very little experience, no matter how talented you were. It was a very difficult time. So, you know, my deciding to go it alone was, it wasn't just pure conviction. It was also necessity, I suppose. And I suppose I could have found a graduate scheme, you know, a, a corporation somewhere. But I think I would have felt like I was dying every day that I went to work, you know, committing my time to something that I didn't believe in, you know. I always sort of knew, even when I was doing like the six-month contract, three-month contract work, you know, if I didn't have a really good go at trying to do what I believed in, then I'd always regret it, basically. I knew that I would always regret not trying my absolute hardest to do the work that I believed in. And so I thought, well, I'll try it. And if I fail, I fail, but at least I know I tried. Well, we're very glad you tried. I want to come now to the ideas that you talk about in your book, which you raise with such passion and such precision. First, I'm going to come to a term, though, and ask you to define it. Uh, you talk about intersectionality. And for listeners who might be unfamiliar with that term, how would you describe it to them? I came to learn about that term because I was trying to look for a word to describe all of those incidences that I've discussed previously about feeling uncomfortable in feminist spaces when you wanted to discuss racism, right? So I knew that something was off, that like, 
here we are talking about women's empowerment, but if you want to discuss how racism affects you as a woman, it just felt quite forbidden. It felt like it's something that you shouldn't raise, right? So I had that feeling, not dissimilar to the way I had, I had a feeling of being a piece of meat on the street. So what I did was look for the people who had described that feeling, you know, in, in literature and academia. And I came across black feminist writers, Kimberly Crenshaw, the academic, Angela Davis in the States. And Kimberly Crenshaw in particular, who was a legal scholar, wrote a paper in 1989. So this is like the year I was born. She described the intersection of racism and sexism that black women experience in this world as intersectionality. And I write in my book that it makes sense that an American would come up with this word, basically. You know, you've ever had to navigate their roads. They're all like little squares, aren't they? You know, that cross over. I don't think that word would come from Britain. All of our roads are curvy, right? So she described it in particular with her experience as a legal scholar, looking at um, legal cases where black women wanted to raise discrimination cases at their workplaces with the law and they had to compare it to somebody who would not receive that discriminatory treatment so they had a choice they could either compare their treatment to a white woman or a black man right <laughs> which it seems kind of silly and reductive doesn't it you know they would sometimes they were told things like well you can raise it but it has to be either racism or sexism you can't have both <laughs> which again just seems like very silly and reductive what Kimberly Crenshaw was trying to explain was that when we're talking about these discriminations, people can be on the receiving end of both at the same time or even more. And that it isn't really either or, you know, and that was intersectionality. I'm probably describing it horribly. And I would urge all listeners to please look at the definition that I give in my book, which actually cites the original text. You know, it's been a while since I read it. And you talk in the book and you've talked to us today about white feminism. And in the book, you describe that as a politics that engages itself with myths like I don't see race that requires people of colour to assimilate into institutionally racist structures without kicking up a fuss. What would enable feminism to move beyond white feminism? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to be tough because it's what we rally around, but we have to kind of let go of an idea that there is just one way that a woman can be affected by gender discrimination, right? Because there's all sorts of different types of women women in this world, you know? And I think to focus incredibly tightly on only gender discrimination, we kind of like inadvertently suggest that gender discrimination... It's the only way that women can be, I guess, held back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From progressing in our, in our society. I think sometimes people with my politics some get accused of not caring about the focus of gender discrimination. But I don't think by expanding our understanding of it, we dilute it. 
I don't think that the by expanding the ways that women can be affected by discrimination, we're diluting a focus on gender discrimination. We just have to be a little bit more realistic. Like, I leave the house, well, less so these days because of lockdown, but let's say I used to leave the house and I'd see all sorts of different women walking around the street, you know. I'd see straight women, queer women, disabled women, you know, black women, white women. And there are certainly things that we're all affected by as women. And my mind always, you know, goes to things like sexual violence when it comes to that, you know, misogyny, as you, you know, put it very well in your speech. But there's also things that some of us are affected by and others benefit from. I have a dear, dear friend of mine who I've met through feminist activism, who uh, is a fantastic activist who is also like disabled. In fact, for the last 12 weeks, she's been shielding as per government advice. She's not been able to leave the house at all. We face discrimination, both of us as women, right? We face misogyny, both of us as women. But when both of us rock up to the same venue to attend something, I can just leap up the stairs because the venue has had able-bodied like me in mind, whereas she has to go through the back entrance because the venue has not has not been designed with disability in mind, you know? And so I think knowing her enlightened me to the reality that I literally live in a world with a built environment that is hostile to people with disabilities. Me recognising that doesn't say, oh, well, as somebody without disabilities, I'm a bad person or I don't deserve this. It just means I recognise that and I accommodate that difference and sort of like honour that difference between us in our friendship. But it's not just even about being friends. It's uh, about just being a person in the world who recognises that that we we face different barriers. And I think, like, it's not just about recognising it, but also trying to dismantle those barriers, right? Because I want to live in a fair and equitable world where she doesn't have to plan in a way that I don't need to plan because she has to expect that the place isn't going to accommodate her needs. And all of that sort of thinking leads you in the book, and you very publicly advocated for this, that... You want us all as feminists to be working for something more than equality. You're basically challenging to say equality's not enough. Can you take us through that argument? Yeah, sure. So I guess I don't want equality. I want liberation because I think the question is equal to whom? Equal to people who have always had an unequal slice of the pie. And I don't want an unequal size for the pie. I want people who have been, have had their life chances restrained by discrimination to be free from those restraints. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to go off and get a degree and be a CEO and do this and do that and whatnot. What I want is for people's life chances to not be hindered by discrimination. I want women to be able to participate in the workplace and in the workspace without the still all too common expectation that women are doing two jobs at home and at work because we still have a what feels like a long way to go when it comes to men recognizing that domestic labor is their responsibility you know in the book I give an example of you know a timeline of a child's life a black child's life in Britain and I point out all this data that shows that at every level of the child's life when it comes to interacting with um state institutions like education, employment, healthcare and housing, there is discrimination that will affect 
their journey through that that will negatively affect their life chances. And what I want is for people to be liberated from those restraints. You know, I want people to be able to fulfill their potential or not fulfill their potential, but I want it to be done on fair terms. I don't want a world in which the circumstances in which you were born or the body in which you were born into um, or the family in which you were born into to drastically determine whether or not you're going to be marked fairly by your teachers when it comes to your exams that are going to get you into secondary school or whether or not you're going to be assessed fairly when it comes to, you know, getting pain medication at the hospital. I just think that it's inherently unfair. So, yeah, I think there is a difference between equality asking for equality and asking for liberation, because I kind of feel that right now we're living in a world in which there are some people who have a disproportionate amount of wealth and power. I don't think that's fair. And I don't want to be equal to that, you know. I don't want to be equal to to people who have a disproportionate amount of um, wealth and power. I want people to, well, first of all, I want that wealth and power to be redistributed. (laughs) But more broadly, I would like... I want to live in a world in which people's life chances aren't hindered by discrimination and inequality. Do you think there's a slight irony that liberation was the word of second wave feminism, a sort of 70s word, and we seem to have discarded it and now you're wanting to use that word again? Do you you feel like we dropped our sights, that the second wave of feminism was asking us to aim for liberation, but somehow along the journey we lowered our sights to equality? I don't know. Do you think it's ironic? Maybe ironic's not the right word, but to ears like mine that were around in the 70s, your ears weren't here in the 70s, mine were, it's intriguing to me to hear that word repurposed as you're using it now. Mm. I mean, I think that... There's been a kind of like pop feminism in the last five to 10 years that in in pursuit of acceptance has used some language that is perceived to be non-threatening. And I think equality is non-threatening. I think liberation is, um, it has a more critical, it like holds a critical eye to the standards that we've built. I think that equality accepts the standards that we've created in our society. And liberation says we are actually questioning those standards We want to be free from those standards, you know. And so I am on on the side of, I guess, my feminism says, well, hang on, equal to whom? Why do we have to accept those standards? Ultimately, those standards are created by people. So surely they can be challenged and reshaped by people too, right? So, I mean, I don't know about irony. I do think that, like... I do think that there has been a, a moving away from uh, 60s and 70s, like feminism in the last maybe decade. But I don't know, I'm always like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You know, because there are certainly some elements that that we can discard, but there's definitely elements that we need to be hanging on to as well. I hope that answers your question. It's a yes, bit it does. Yes, it does. I want to bring you now to the moment that you wrote your famous blog post, which then led to the book. You wrote the words, I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experience. 
You can see their eyes shut down and harden. What were you feeling when you wrote those words? And do you think in the years since we've made progress? Well, I think we can all guess what I was feeling. I was pretty much despairing at that point. I was very much just giving up. And it it wasn't apropos of nothing. It was a few things. It was after, you know, a while of trying to raise racism issues and feminism and being told that I was divisive and the problem. And it's also after watching a a film that uh, Oprah shouted about in the early 90s called The Colour of Fear, in which uh, there's like a bunch of men in the room, there's two white guys, and um, the rest of them are like men of colour. I think two black men some Asian men in the in the American sense. Um, they're all American, and they're basically trying to discuss um, racism. Out of the two white guys, there's one guy who like accepts that racism is a problem in society and that he may benefit from it. And then there's another white guy who's just like absolute double-down denial and defensiveness. And every time somebody in the group says, well, I was followed by the police the other day, or I was followed by... Um, a security guard when I was trying to do my food shopping. He caused them paranoid or said they got a victim complex. And um, despite that film coming out, you know, long before I had consciousness of these concepts, I just related so hard to having been on the receiving end of being told it was all in my head. And uh, I think something about the, the time distance between that film coming out and me sort of reaching that point of despair made me think, wow, like, this is never going to change, is it? <laughs> Perhaps all of my advocacy is utterly pointless. Perhaps I need to give up. Or at least perhaps I need to draw a boundary for the sake of my soul and sanity. Just stop. Um, and so, you know, that centres why I'm no longer talking to white people about race was me drawing that boundary and saying, OK, I can't do this anymore because I can't be on the receiving end of that kind of like verbal violence, that insistence that my pointing out the problem is some kind of paranoia. And so I tried to explain what the boundary was and why I was drawing it. And, and that was what the blog post was about. I felt sad, but also kind of relieved in the, in the way that you feel when, you know, if there's somebody in your life who's a little bit too much to, to handle, a bit toxic, not, always, not very good for you, even if you love them, you have to come to the conclusion that, okay, wow, I don't know if I can continue this anymore for my own, for my own well-being. That's how I felt, you know. I'm going to come now to the final uh, set of questions that we do in each podcast. I start those questions by putting a fact to my guest. Your fact is as follows. According to a study by leanin.org and McKinsey, 40% of black women have had their judgment questioned in their area of expertise compared with 27% of men. 35% of black women said their manager promotes their contributions to others, whereas 46% of men said that the manager did that for them. And 41% of black women said they had never had a substantive interaction with a senior leader about their work, whereas only 27% of men said that. What's your reaction to those statistics? I think it largely confirms not just what I hear from my readers anecdotally, but, you know, some of the data that I've discussed, that I wrote about and discussed in the book. To me, it it strongly resonates with a a problem that I hear from black professionals largely, which is that it it feels like because of the body you inhabit, your contributions are considered to be 
be biased, but I mean, let's be real, like leadership in a lot of our large organisations tend to be like overrepresented by white guys and nobody can, seems to consider that, that their contributors are biased, right? <laughs> it, sometimes it feels like pointing out how either racism or sexism is impacting your area of expertise is considered to be biased rather than um, than objective. That's really troubling for me. That's really troubling to me. And this might sound a little bit abstract, but I think we do largely have a problem when it comes to our public debate about who we consider to be subjective and who we consider to be objective, right? And it always seems like white white guys get to be objective on things and get to be the neutral voice. And people who aren't white guys are considered to have an agenda (laughs) when it comes to strongman leaders. We're seeing this all around the world, uh, you know, your Bolsonaros, your your Trumps and whatnot. Some of these white guys definitely have an agenda, even if it's just self-preservation, right? (laughs) And keeping a status quo so that they can keep, you know, destroying our politics. (laughs) So that is very troubling to me, that uh, black women's contributions are not considered equal to, you know, white male counterparts. That's very troubling to me. Sometimes I feel that contributions to the public discussion on racism or sexism are almost considered not as important to how we are shaping our world than, let's say, economics or whatnot. And that's extremely troubling to me because, again, I see that these things are inextricably linked, right? You know, women's domestic labour isn't considered valuable enough to be um, part of what we would contribute to GDP when we know that no one's household could run without it, right? So nobody could go to work if the house is a mess and a state and nobody can find their clean clothes and there's no plates to eat off because they're all in the sink. So to me, like a gender analysis and a, a race analysis and, and an, an analysis of inequality is like key to understanding the, the world that we live in. I do get very, very concerned when, you know, sometimes we see pushback that claims that it's either completely separate or um, not as important to public conversation about the, the way our world is going than what are considered to be hard subjects, you know. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Well, one thing that really, really still bothers me, I think, you know, we've spoken quite a lot in this conversation about the standards that are set and, and questioning those standards. And sometimes I feel those standards that, you're usually pretty patriarchal. It feels like a lot of people fall in line with them and don't question them. So when my book was about to be published, I had to do this like publicity rounds, right? And as somebody who's an introvert and likes to just stay at home behind my laptop and never really got into this whole line of work to be seen in public or whatnot, it was a bit weird to me, but my publisher was like, well, you know, this is what you've got to do so that people know about the book. So I was like, fine. One of the emails I received was from an editor at a women's magazine who, and this was before anybody knew about the book. She's like, we'd like you to write a piece about your book. Um, We'll pay you for it. It'll be a nice bit of publicity. And um, what we'd like you to do is uh, write about your relationships with different men of different races. (laughs) And what it's like... What it's like dating a white guy, a black guy, Asian guy. (laughs) And I was like, have you read the book? And she was like, 
she obviously hadn't read it. Anyway, I just hit the roof. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> I was like, it's, it's not memoir and it's not really about dating. There are some people who write great and interesting things about, you know, dating in this world as a black woman, but that's not really what I'm writing about or where I'm trying to position myself. So I challenged this editor who was from a woman's magazine and I said, well, you wouldn't ask. And then I reeled off a number of like male political journalists. I said, you wouldn't ask any of those people to um, to write about their partnerships. I was like, there's people who write about politics in this country who nobody even knows that they're gay because it's not relevant, you know, what their sexual orientation is, you know, to their work. <laughs> and uh, she got very offended and she said, oh, maybe I would. And she said, and anyway, that's what our readers want. Our readers want to know about relationships. That's what our readers want. <laughs> so anyway, I told her to sling her rook and I refused to do it. One of the things that was so pertinent about, you know, that's what our readers want, you know, the low standards that, that this woman editor has for her, her women readers. And I'm sure perhaps that's what she, that bore out in the data for her being an editor for this magazine for God knows how long, but... It's only what you want if that's what you keep giving them, you know, <laughs> like to suggest that that's how the, her woman readers could engage with these issues through the prism of relationships with men was really troubling and deeply misogynistic. And I do sometimes, well, I don't sometimes, I know that, you know, the ideology of patriarchy, anyone of any gender can participate in it. Right. And um, to me, that's very soft and pernicious, like misogyny to assume that, you know, for me entering the public sphere as a 27-year-old woman, she thought it was appropriate that I be positioned in that way to talk about my relationships with men because that's important. I mean, no one's asking at Owen Jones, Gary Young, any male political writers about, about their relationships because it's deemed not relevant to their work. That was deeply, like, disturbing to me. I guess this is going to make me sound a bit weird and ungrateful, but... More versions of that kind of like soft misogyny and sexism that I, I guess, experienced in my career was I found myself doing a lot of photo shoots when my book was about to come out. Lots of photo shoots for women's magazines. And, you know, I did interviews with journalists for those magazines and the, the journalists did ask me questions that were interesting and, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have been out of place, you know, in a broadsheet. But I once heard the singer Lily Allen say in an interview, she said that as a woman in her industry, you know, as a young woman in her industry, you know, essentially getting doled up for photo shoots is um, is something that she has to do far more than men doing the same work. And And I did find that. I did find that. I did find that, you know, pictures of me doled up with nails done and whatnot were sort of expected because of the body I inhabited in a way that like, again, I mean, I've got to keep referring to Gary Young because you know he's probably one of my main influences for me doing the work that I do I'm happy to you know he was an influence 10 years ago and I'm privileged enough to call him a friend now but I'm just saying for all of the years of political journalism writing and books that he's done I've never seen him on the cover of a magazine with his hair done and his nails done you know in a fancy suit because as a man I guess he's just not expected to do that you know and I'm not saying that I am ungrateful for the publicity and the exposure that these outlets gave me, because it certainly, you know, got the word of my book out there. But I do think it's weird. I do think it's weird that as a young woman who was writing political nonfiction, that was something I was expected to do in a way that I hadn't seen my counterparts do. I wouldn't say that was the worst misogyny, but I, it did expose an interesting dynamic. But 
the worst misogyny was definitely can you write about men? (laughs) (laughs) If you had uh, all the power in the world for a moment, what would you change for women? I guess I'm really, really interested and invested in um, fundamentally changing our societal attitudes. I wouldn't ban this or change the law on that because I wouldn't want to do anything top down. I feel like top down change usually breeds resentment. I would like people to truly believe that street harassment is wrong and to stop doing it because they believe in their heart that it's a dehumanising thing to do, you know. I would like to change hearts and minds if I had the opportunity to, if I could just wave a magic wand. Maybe it'd be a bit fascist, I don't know, but that's what I'd do, you know. Change hearts and minds so that people really believed and understood that, you know, women are not objects but human beings with autonomy in this world who deserve to participate Uh, in it as much as anybody else does. That would be a big thing to do with all the power in the world, absolutely. Virginia Woolf says, I want to write a novel about silence, the things people don't say. Rennie says? Hmm. I don't know, liberation, not equality. How about that? Love it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Terrific to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.